Open your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah 40. We'll begin at verse 13. We'll continue through the end of chapter 41 and verse 18. I was privileged to preach uh, many times in the last few days at a men's conference in Virginia, but I noticed this morning that my voice is grinding down, so if I start faltering, you will pray me through it. I think I'll be all right. Well, beginning at verse 13 of Jeremiah 40, listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Now, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Please let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. And no one will know it. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who were gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall not do this thing for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and they ate bread together there at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him, rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said, Come into Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And when they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was a large cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughter, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces who were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon, and when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away, captive from Ishmael, turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. 
But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth Kinham, near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, which makes us wise unto salvation, makes us wise about ourselves, wise about the world, wise to know that the only deliverer we will ever have is the son who came into this world to set us free. We pray in his name, amen. William Quantrill was a school teacher who immigrated from Ohio to Kansas in 1857, and he soon became embroiled in the violence surrounding the question of whether Kansas would be a slave or a free state. And when the Civil War began in 1861, at first he enlisted in the Confederate Army, but he soon deserted and he formed a band of irregular cavalry raiders that would serve the Confederate cause as uh, making raids. They were sort of guerrilla warriors, that's what they were, making raids against Union forces. And they became known as Quantrill's Raiders. They were the most famous of the Confederate irregular units that struck against federal outposts and very often federal towns. Now his band included some of the most notorious future outlaws in the West. Frank and Jesse James were Quantrill Raiders. Cole Younger and his brothers, if you know your Western histories, these are the top outlaws. They were all Quantrill Raiders. Now there were many atrocities committed by this group, but the most famous and savage was Quantrill's attack on the city of Lawrence, Kansas on August 21st, 1865. During the night, his 450 raiders slipped into town. Now, someone is not guarding their gates. If 450 Quantrill raiders slip into your town, and it's bad news because he burned a quarter of the town, they looted every house, and they murdered 180 civilians. Now, fleeing into Texas, Quantrill committed so many atrocities that he was actually arrested by the Confederate authorities. But he escaped arrest, and he took his band eastward to Kentucky. When the last Confederate army surrendered on April 9th, 1865, marking the end of the Civil War, Quantrill and his raiders kept fighting until he was shot in Spencer County, Kentucky on May 10th. 1865. Now when that happened, the remaining ruffians then scattered. Many of them, Frank and Jesse James, the Youngers, would continue a life of murder and robbery that would plague the West into the 1870s. Now I bring up the record of William Quantrill and his raiders because they provide a, it provides a suitable template for understanding who this Ishmael son of Nethaniah is and his appearance at Mizpah in Jeremiah 41, and how it wreaks destruction among the remnant of the people in the land of Judah. Remember, we're after the fall of Jerusalem. They've been conquered now, 
It's 587 BC, and, and this godly man, Gedaliah, has been put in charge. He's now the Babylonian governor under Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he's been allowed to keep the people who are left there, and they're going to engage in peaceful agriculture. They're tending to the fall harvest of the olive and wine, grapevines. And we learn that outlying soldiers who had not been caught up in the defeat, they start coming into Mizpah, and Gedaliah would take an oath from them that they would lay down their arms, they would accept his authority, they would pursue peace. So this was a promising beginning to life after conquest. And it was shattered by the arrival of Ishmael and his raiders. Their coming turned conquest into chaos and ruin. Well, the first thing we learn from this passage is that sin requires us to be wary. That's the first point of our sermon. Because this hopeful attitude shared by Gedaliah and the Jewish remnant failed to appreciate the full extent of God's wrath. The Lord had promised a devastating judgment on the iniquity of his people and it was not concluded with the fall of the city of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 24, 9, God had pledged to make Judah a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach, a byword, and a taunt. And so Matthew Henry points out that all the perfidious cruelty we'll see in Jeremiah 41 was permitted by God for the completing of the ruin of an unhumbled people and the filling up of the measure of their judgments who had filled up the measure of their iniquity. Well, accordingly, the neighboring kingdom of Ammon, who was a historical enemy of Judah, seized upon the conquest of Judah in order to wreak destruction among the remnant of its people. Now we learn about this through a warning that is brought to Gedaliah by a loyal commander named Johanan, the son of Korea. And he shows up at Mizpah with his forces. And in verse 14 of chapter 40, he goes to Gedaliah and he says, do you know that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? Now, it's very likely that the Ammonite king, he wanted to scarp off some, you know, some, some Judean land. But the problem was they were no longer in chaos. There was a Babylonian governor and this was messing his plans up. So he takes a contract out to remove the problem, to have Gedaliah assassinated. And uh, Johanan brings this news to Gedaliah. Now, in addition to the malice of neighboring Ammon, Johanan reports that this contract has been accepted by this Ishmael, who quite astonishingly, although not if we think about it, is a, a son of the royal line. Now, he's probably a distant cousin of King Zedekiah. We're told he was a high government official, but remember, all those kings had numerous concubines, and there were all kinds of far-flung people of royal lineage, and, and he's one of them. And he was willing to take money from the king of Ammon to perform this dastardly deed. Now we ask, why would he do this? Well, there's a number of motives come to mind. He might have been envious, resentful, that Gedaliah, who's from a very noble family, but he's not royal. And why is Gedaliah governor instead of me? Maybe that envy was part of it. Maybe he so resented the Babylonians that the whole notion of making peace with them was something he couldn't accept. And so he wanted to, to just end all that, even at the destruction of his people. Well, that, those are all plausible. But his subsequent actions suggest that like William Quantrill, Ishmael had become so accustomed to violence 
that a bloodthirsty malice now controlled him. John Mackay describes him as the prototype of the amoral modern terrorist who has lost track of the cause he's supporting and he derives satisfaction merely from increasing violence and attention-grabbing atrocities. That is who we meet in Ishmael. Now the problem is that Gedaliah, look at verse 14, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe Johanan's report. And so the warrior pulls him aside and urges him to think clearly about this, that it's not just about his own life, but everything's at stake. Look at verse 15. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who were gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? The consequences of the Babylonian governor being killed were were beyond thinking about. And he realized this. If the people were going to be able to have a place in their sacred land, Gedalia must not be killed. And so in verse 15, he offers to go eliminate the threat. Please let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Now I have to say commentators take a dim view of that offer. I think in light of the actual reality, here you have an assassin who's coming down from an enemy force to murder the governor. I think this is an entirely appropriate armed response. Yet Gedalia would not permit him to act. Verse 16, he responds, you shall not do this thing for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. Now we don't know why Gedalia refused Johanna's warning. It may be, he probably knew Ishmael. Maybe he had good experiences years ago. They're both royal officials, so he would have met him, I'm sure. But what we do know that he was not sufficiently wary about the reality and the problem of sin. He was not wary on account of sin. And in that respect, Gedalia is like so many people in our time, certainly the vast majority of our political leaders who naively and sentimentally talk about the inherent goodness of men and women, that this is sincerity and the, the goodness of people. In great contrast, the Bible warns believer of the great problem, the pervasive problem of sin against which we must be on guard. Now, you and I are living in a time, I don't have to tell you, where the news is just every day. On Monday, I don't know, four college students are slain by a, well, they, they suspect this a criminology doctoral student who, who used knives to slay him on Monday. And we all go, how could that happen? We don't understand that. And on Tuesday, we learn of some grand larceny scream defrauding millions of people. We go, I don't understand how that can happen. Then we, someone goes into a school. How many times does this have to happen? And this horrible, he, he, he shoots school children at their desk. And we say, we don't understand how this happens. And the Bible says, you need to open your Bible because the Bible will tell you that man in sin is evil. And we must be wary about the reality and the danger of sin. Now, Jeremiah has told us in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Paul perhaps spoke most pointedly in Romans 3. No one is righteous, no, not one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And he tells us why. Why do we have a pervasive evil? Why is sin such a big deal that we need to really be on guard against it? Well, here's the reason. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans three eighteen. 
Now, Jesus certainly spared no delusions about mankind. He explained why the world was going to hate him. John 3.19, he said, light has come into the world, but people love darkness. What a statement that is from our Lord. It's the problem. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, because of the great reality of sin and evil in the human heart, governing leaders like Gedalia have a duty to be on guard to protect their people from deadly violence. That means that cities require well-trained policemen, and if they don't have them, their streets are not going to be safe. Consider the evidence. It's all around us. Modern society, a nation, must have a well-armed military to defend against bloodthirsty foes, and there must be a will to do it. Now, we may pretend that we live in a world where those things are, are not needed, but that is not the world we live in. We live in the Bible's world, where sin is real, it is deadly, we must be wary of it. I, I think modern society conspires to give us this illusion that we live, life is kind of like a shopping mall. It's just filled with delights, however shallow, that, that meet our every craving. Or maybe even more pointedly, it's the amusement park. We all love to go to Disneyland. Why? Because you just feel so safe. Everyone smiles. They are paid to smile, but it's all good. And, and, and we, we have this sense that this is li- and life is like that, my friends. It is not. It is a war zone. It is a spiritual, it is a moral battlefield. We must take sin into account. We must be wary. You think of when Adam and Eve fell and were expelled from the garden. How long did it take for the process of sin to make its way to murder? Eight verses is the answer. The first child born to Adam and Eve murdered the second child born to Adam and Eve. And God's warning to Cain is equally valid to us today. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you if you do not rule over it. Genesis 4, 7. Now, there's a number of ways for us to apply the lesson learned from Gedalia's unwariness regarding sin. And at first, it's parents. Parents must raise their children to know the Lord. They must know the gospel but also to gain self-control with respect to temptations to sin. I jokingly but honestly say if you're under the delusion that your child is innocent until some later age, if they're a little angel, then I offer you to just serve in our nursery, any nursery. Original sin is a real thing, and parents must be unsentimentally aware of it. And so parents who do not teach their boys and girls to obey God's word, warning them about sin, even as they give them the good news of forgiveness, we must give them the gospel right up front that we're forgiven. But at the same time, we must discipline them. I remember 20 years ago when suddenly it was no longer wise to spank children. And I realized in some states, I just committed a crime. We need to commit that crime. We must speak the truth, spare the rod, slay the child. Godly spanking, not hurting children, parental discipline according to the Bible. And 20 years ago, it was almost universally rejected in America. I remember saying to myself, I wonder what it's going to be like 20 years from now. When a generation of children who were never spanked by their parents, who who never had the parents waging holy, loving, self-controlled war against their sinful nations, what's it going to be like? Turn on the news. 
Turn on the news. The picture of the student dragging the teacher into the hallway and beating her. It's just this widespread, pervasive scenario. We must be wary of sin. And parents must raise our children in a way that seeks to oppose not only their own sin, but makes them wise about the sin of the world. Now, let me give you another example and application. The church, therefore, must be on guard against the attacks of the devil. And we are very naive in the evangelical movement today. Uh, And the Bible tells us particularly that Satan will infiltrate the church with false teaching. When the New Testament epistles are filled with the problem of heresy. And, And the labor of the apostles, they take it so seriously. The very life of the church is at stake. And I often think of Jesus in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the watchmen were asleep, the enemy came in and sowed weeds among the weeds. They're to be watchmen and they're to be watching. That's the, the elders, the ministers, the presbytery. And so we're to be vigilant. Why? Because we, sin's not a joke. Because spiritual warfare is a real thing. Now, thirdly, all Christians must be wary not to fall in to the snares of a sinful world. And let me just give some obvious examples here. Young believers must be on guard against the alcoholic party scene so prevalent in every young generation. And it's not legalistic to say no Christian has any business being drunk at a party. That's not legalism. That's biblical realism. That's just being wise about the reality of sin. Let me, let me change my target audience. Men must, be, must fear pornography. With, with this insidious lie, this is going to help you out. This is going to manage your self-pity and these things, and it will destroy your relationships. It will corrupt your hearts. And so when you see the temptation, and it's pervasive, we must fear and hate it. And if, my friends, if you're in that snare, then you must make a priority with the help of your friends and of the church to get out of that snare because we must be wary about sin and the death that it brings. I could go on giving examples. I'll give one more. The ambitious must be on guard against the love of money and the, the, the craving for wealth. Nothing wrong if you happen to be wealthy, but the craving of wealth. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. We can just multiply the examples. We must be wary of sin. And the church must be a fellowship committed to that mutual encouragement we read about in our scripture reading from Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is tricky. It is deceitful. We need each other. We need a Christian friend to come on and go, hey, we need to talk, my friend. Let's pray together. We need a Christian sister to come along and say, can I I share a concern I have in a loving way? Not in a kind of a weird, controlling way. Loving exhortation because of the deceitfulness of sin. We are to be wary of sin. Well, Gedalia was not. And because of that, we learn a second lesson, that sin, when unchecked, leads to gross depravity. That's what we see in chapter 41, the awful tale of what happens to Gedalia because he was not wary of the approaching evil. And so verse 1, in the seventh month, Ishmael and ten of his men arrived before Gedalia at Mishpah. And by the way, the seventh month would be October 
in the Jewish calendar versus ours. Remember, Jerusalem fell in July, so we're about, what's it, about three months? So this is still a fragile community. They're just getting started. They're still hurting. They need strong, wise, godly leadership. Gedalia was godly, but he was not strong in wisdom. And so he invites Ishmael and his men, but there's any number of reasons. Maybe it's diplomacy, probably naivete. He has a feast. He invites them at it. And we read what happened. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Verse 2. Now, even by biblical sobriety in estimating sin, Ishmael's actions were dastardly in the extreme. Here is a man for whom nothing was sacred. Even today, certainly back then, hospitality was a sacred thing in the ancient Near East. And if you had a guest, you were supposed to bring them to the table. And if you were a guest at table, you, never, you didn't criticize your host. You certainly didn't lift a hand against him. But this man's conscience is so seared. Why? Because sin was unchecked. It grows. The heart hardens. Depravity deepens. And now his conscience is so seared that it's just an opportunity to, 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 make, it, to make his murder more cold-blooded. Oh, great. We'll accept the hospitality and we'll use the, the, his, his unwariness and we'll slay him at the table. That's what they do. They kill him in cold blood. Walter Brueggemann summarizes, he exploits a friendly public gesture from the governor and in complete dishonor, he commits an outrage. And the text emphasizes his callous disregard about the important, notice how often this is the governor who Nebuchadnezzar appointed. The the consequences are really going to be severe. This is not just a personal matter. He's striking a death blow at the remnant in Judah. Moreover, it wasn't just the governor who he killed. Verse 3, Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedali at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. Oh, oh great. Now we've killed the few Babylonian guards who were there. Well, the next day, Ishmael's still on the scene when a fresh opportunity for bloodlust is presented. Verses 4 to 5. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. Now this is a pilgrimage, 80 men from the northern area that used to be Israel, Shiloh, Shechem, Samaria, those were Israel, northern kingdom cities. But probably these are some of the columnists. Remember a generation earlier, godly King Josiah had repopulated those regions. And clearly they've heard about the fall of Jerusalem and they're coming as mourners, just seeking to to honor the Lord and to to petition the Lord and to seek his mercy in their grief. It, It may mean that it was the actual timing of the Feast of Tabernacle because these grain offerings that are mentioned were prominent in the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was roughly October in in most years. And they also seem to have known about the temple's destruction because they don't bring any animal sacrifices. And so they're going to before where their temple used to be, and they're going to mourn before the Lord. Their beards are shaved. Their clothes are torn. We're, We're told here their bodies are gashed. That's actually contrary to God's law. But this is a pilgrimage seeking to grieve before the Lord over the fallen city. 
Well, since Ishmael had been commissioned by the king of Ammon only to take Gedaliah's life, there was no reason for him still to be here. It was an assassination contract. He had assassinated Gedaliah. Why is he even still there? Well, we're going to see in the verses to come because he's like a cat and he's looking for mice with whom to play. Look at the wicked response he gives to these passing pilgrims. Verses 6 to 7. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. And as he met them, he said to them, Come into Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And when they came into the city, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. So they lured these passers-by into the city, ruthlessly took their lives, and then just dumped their bodies into a cistern, polluting, by the way, the water supply of what was the headquarters of the new government. Now we're told in verse 9, this was a large cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with a slain. Now that's a couple of centuries earlier. Asa is one of the early kings after Solomon. One of the great godly kings. He built this place as a defense against the northern kingdom. So this is a place of historical interest, of national historical significance. But, but he doesn't care. It's a place of important logistical value. And he desecrates it. He dumps the bodies of innocent victims to make it a, 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 a grave sewer. We're told that 10 of the northerners escaped because they appealed to his greed. They told him a story. I suspect it was a cockamamie story, but we're not told. Uh, that, oh, we have some grain and olives and stuff, and, and so they, they successfully are able to live. Now, at this point, Ishmael probably realizes that it's time to skedaddle, to use a technical military term. That if he stuck around, if just more people were going to come by, he couldn't keep this up. So he sets off to receive his reward from the Ammonite king. But first, he rounds up all the people who he hasn't killed. And he takes them as captives, verse 10. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. Now, what's interesting is that among them were the daughters of King Zedekiah. And so I don't know if the Babylonians got tired or they got worn out with slaying his sons or they just had mercy on the king's daughters. They'd actually committed the daughters of King Zedekiah to the care of Gedaliah, the governor, and they're still there. Now, by the way, that would make them relatives, maybe distant relatives, but relatives still to Ishmael. But He has no mercy. He's going to take them and deliver them and basically sell them to the pagan king. Now what we're seeing here in this sequence of vicious actions is that sin, when unchecked, leads to deeper and deeper depravity. Jesus said whoever sins is a slave to sin. John 8, 34. He didn't just mean that you keep sinning. He means it gains control over your desires. It, 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 starts, it starts corrupting your conscience. It, it starts controlling your affections. And so this foolish notion that I'm going to permit myself to dabble in this sin and somehow I'm going to keep it in its place, the Bible says this is vain folly. Because when we have given ourselves over to a sin, we will not retain control. Again, I'll return to pornography and the obvious, the demonstrated link between that and the sexual violence of women. 
the one, people usually, I don't think they start off wanting to be rapists. They start there and their hearts are corrupted. By the way, we're not taking serious violence against women as long as pornography is legal. But that's true in other sin areas. Unrepented hatred leads to murder. And so if you're allowing your heart to be embittered, that's going to lead into speech and then actions. Sin, when unchecked, leads to depths of depravity. Now, I think of Psalm 1, that, that, which every Christian should know, that classic expression, blessed is he who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And it says, okay, it starts there. And the foolish believer says, I'll just expose myself to the lies and the temptations because they're popular today. I, I, I want to be able to expose to those. And I'm going to imbibe of things that I know are ungodly and it'll be fine. But it doesn't stay there. Blessed is he who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners. Oh, what's next is the company you keep. And the habits that are formed that are becoming ingrained, it doesn't stop there, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, what began apparently innocently has led you to a place you never intended to go. Now your conscience is hardened. You're sitting in, just the whole imagery of that, you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. You are an apostate. That's what that's saying. You're confirmed in iniquity. It began by not taking sin seriously. And when once sinning, failing to act aggressively against it. Now, we're led again by this sobering portent of sin. I think, first of all, to consider the duty of Christian parents to firmly but lovingly rebuke sin in their children. Think of David and his three sons, Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. And David's the man after God's own heart, this noble, beautiful figure in the Old Testament. And he has the worst sons. You go, how does David have Amnon, who, you know, raped his sister Tamnar, and then Absalom murders Amnon in a very Ishmael sort of way. And then he launches a rebellion that almost does David in. And then at the very end, you get Adonijah, who's trying to usurp the throne. And you're going, how did this happen to David? And the answer is found in 1 Kings 1.6. His father never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done so and so? And so realizing that sin, when unchecked, leads to depravity, gross depravity, we will be wary to strive against sin in our children, but we will also pray for God's saving grace. Conversion is always a supernatural matter. We we must proclaim the gospel to our children we must fight sin in their lives while we're doing many other wonderful things with them and we must pray 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 because salvation is always a sovereign gift of god and then paul applies this to all of us colossians 3 5 put to death whatever is earthly within you and in colossians 3 one i love colossians 3 because paul tells us that we fight sin at the root not at the stem. The inward desires, we mortify them by the means of grace with the word of God and prayer and practical effort. We, we, we attack sinful desires and if we don't, death will overcome us. We pursue God's grace to replace vice with godly virtue. We seek through the cleansing blood of Christ, not only to be freed from the guilt of sin, but by the power in the spirit of the cleansing of, of his blood to be freed from its power. Well, we've seen how believers must be wary of sin. And when sin is unchecked, it leads to depths of evil. Jeremiah 41 concludes with the legacy of fear and despair that sin leaves. 
the legacy of Finn and Despair, as briefly as I can, the final verses are pretty encouraging. Johannan comes back. He's got other forces with him. They, they hear what's happened, and they begin pursuing to rescue those who've been taken. Verses 11 and 12, they fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. And you can always go faster than somebody who's got captives. Taking captives is slow. And so they catch up to them at the pool of Gibeon, where Joab had slain Abner in First Samuel Second uh, Samuel 2, 3. And the rescue party is seen and the captives rejoice, we read in verse 14. They turn around and come back. How can they do that? Because Ishmael's a coward. He's not going to fight against even odds. He immediately bolts with eight of his men and and they they speed away to Ammon. That's what happens. But what's really interesting is, is how Johanan responds to the bitter situation. Now that he's going to serve as a leader in the place of slain Gedaliah, he gathers up the reduced remnant of the people where we read soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs. Again, I think the eunuchs are likely the bodyguards of the royal daughters. And he leads them south, we read, toward Bethlehem, verse 17, intending to go to Egypt. And he chose that course because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, verse 18, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Now, just on the surface, this is not a good decision. Uh, Almost all the people of Judah are in Babylon. That's where they've been taken. Babylon is the place to go. Moreover, Jeremiah has preached, remember chapter 29, the letter to the exiles, that God is going to save his people through the Babylonian exile. So you go to Babylon, not to Egypt. You know, the whole idea of Israel going back to Egypt is kind of undoing your salvation. Not good. So why is he doing this? Because he's gripped by fear and despair. However innocent they may be, he's afraid that any association with the murder of the Babylonian governor is just going to bring wrath and destruction upon them. In fear and in dismay, he flees. Now one question we need to ask, maybe you've thought of it, is where is Jeremiah in all of this? Well, he's got to be somewhere. Like we know he's somewhere. Another question is, why is this even in the Bible? Well, clearly, they, Jeremiah and Baruch were involved in some way, and it made an impression on them. By the way, also, the consequences of this are going to have significant historical results. But here's the question I want to ask. Why didn't Johanan consult the prophet that he had with him when he's deciding what to do? Because here's the lesson. We, in the times when we are gripped by fear and dismay, and this will, it will happen to us, it's not our own sins, the sins of others, the suffering in a, in a fallen world, the things that happen, we're gripped by fear and dismay, the place to go is the word of God. Why did he not do that? Well, he did, actually. That's going to be chapter 42. They seek Jeremiah's counsel. They don't listen to it, but they seek it. And we're reminded that in times of fear and distress and despair, our chief resource is the Bible. When we find ourselves in darkness, we need light. And God's word is that light. We remember, say, for instance, in the Psalms, that we are not the only ones who suffered this way. All the, all the emotions we go through, they're right in the Psalms. All the circumstances we're in, they're in the Psalms. 
And the Psalms remind us that the Lord is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly strengthened. We, we get, we get our, our feet, our legs underneath us. We begin to stand on the rock of faith, Psalm 62, verse 2. We're reminded in the Bible that God is sovereign, yes, over my trials. And he's going to use them. What, what did Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we may go, I don't know what good it is. It doesn't look good to me. But God is sovereign. And so we appeal to the Bible and despair gives way to faith. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, Psalm 56. In Psalm 36, 9, we, we read, with you is the fountain of light of life. In your light, we see light. My friends, in times of fear and distress, open the Bible. Well, let me conclude by pointing out that Johanan's rescue, however well-motivated, very noble, in fact, it did not produce a suitable remedy to the devastation of sin. But the most important thing we learn when we open our Bibles, that there is a greater deliverer who came into the chaos of this world as a conqueror in order to deliver us from the captivity of sin. Johanan is not him, but there is another. And he comes into the chaos deliberately as a true conqueror to set us free from captivity. Jesus says he came to seek and to save those who were lost, Luke 19.10. He was named Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sin, Matthew 1.21. In fact, when you go back remembering Jesus and you go back over the baleful story of Jeremiah 40 and 41, you see connections with the experience of Jesus. The most obvious is that Gedali is slain by a man who was sharing a meal with him. And we're reminded of how Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And he said that he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me, Matthew 26, 23. It shows us that Jesus deliberately came into the same world that we have to deal with. He, he came into the chaos in order to be our deliverer. Remember how when, when Pontius Pilate tried to set him free and the crowds called out, Barabbas, Barabbas, it, 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 they might have said Ishmael, it's the same guy, the terrorist. That's, what, that's who we approve, Ishmael, Ishmael, of the son of Nathaniah. We want him but slay Jesus. And unlike Gedalia, Jesus was fully conscious of the evil of men. But like Gedalia, he willingly surrendered himself into the hands of those who slew him. And when we consider the parallels between Jeremiah 34 and the crucifixion of Jesus, again, we have a Savior who came into the chaos. You and I cannot manage the chaos. We cannot overcome sin. There's a reason there would be fear and despair, because that's the truth, except for him. And he comes into the chaos. He conquers sin by the blood of his cross. He sends the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those believe. And he delivers us from the power of sin. He says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8.36. He gives a deliverance Johanna never could. He frees us from the guilt of sin. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. I want to conclude with a man who knew the chaos of sin. It wasn't even his own sin. It was just the, the suffering in a world of sin and brokenness. In such great darkness, he remembered the light of Christ. His name is Horatio Spafford. Many of you have heard of him. 
He was a pretty wealthy businessman in Chicago, but the great fire hit in 1871. He's a believer, Christian family. And he loses most of his fortune, and it's just very stressful. So he decides he's going to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to Europe. And at the last minute, a business arrangement comes up, and he can't go. He sends his wife and four girls on the steamer, the Ville de Havre. And while it's crossing the Atlantic Ocean, it is struck by an iron steamer vessel. And within 12 minutes, the ship sank in three miles of ocean, taking the lives of 226 passengers. Remarkably, Spafford's wife survived. She was actually found unconscious, floating on debris, and she ended up in Ireland. She cabled her husband, who had learned of the disaster, and her cable read, saved alone. Well, there's a man who's reeling in the the fear and the despair of a world ripped by sin, and he, he sails to meet his wife, and he's seeking solace for his grief in his knowledge of Christ and his salvation. His ship actually gets to a point in the ocean and the captain calls him on the deck and says, Sir, I solemnly need to tell you that this is the, this is the place where your daughters went into the grave. And he stands at the rail and he applies his faith to Jesus. And he actually says, They are safe, dear lambs. His daughters were believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all the grief, he was able to overcome the darkness of this fallen world by saying, I know that they are in heaven. And he wrote a hymn that has given solace to so many of us, suffering in the chaos and loss of this world. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, with my soul. But what about sin? What about the terrible grip that reduces our souls to fear and dismay? No, but he'd learned in God's word that Jesus frees us from fear and anguish over the guilt and curse of sin. And he wrote of the great deliverance that God has provided through the blood of Jesus, a deliverance that is available to you and me if we will trust in Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is a a greater deliverer than Johanan, and he's a pretty good guy. But Lord, we need a savior. And Father, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And we, don't, we ourselves are so weak and we are faced with evil powers. But it is well with our souls because we know that our eternity is secure in Christ. That he has conquered sin. He has conquered the grave. That through faith he sends your spirit that we ourselves might be set free. And so I pray, Father, that we would lay hold of him in faith. And then we would be wary. And that we would be sanctified by your word and by your spirit, and that we would be able to sing our song about it being well with our soul because of the salvation you have given through your son. We pray in his name, amen.